0: Welcome to another edition of Down the HR Rabbit Hole, brought to you by Crescent HR and Crescent Payroll Solutions. My name is Sanders Offner, and I am the president of CPS. So, we are once again excited about this podcast. We've got a returning guest who um, is definitely the subject matter expert for what we're talking about today. Um, So, we expect to have some amazing content, great conversations. And for those of you who are listening, you should be able to take quite a bit away into your own business or into your HR practices. But first, before I do that, I want to introduce
1: our HR advisor, Philip Carrillo. Welcome, Philip. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. And as always, happy to be here. Thank you. Well, Philip, uh, could you
0: reintroduce our our friend and guest today?
1: Yes, I'm very happy to Michelle Butler, who has become um, one of my favorite people to talk to, even though it's uh, few and far between um, when we get a chance to chat. But she's a lovely, lovely person, brilliant to boot. And um, so right now, uh, Michelle Butler is a, an HR consultant with Gotcha Covered New Orleans. She uh, consults with businesses on everything, EEO, and then some. Um, her background includes 33 years at the EEOC, where she was uh, first a trial attorney, then she became a supervisor regional director, she served as acting deputy director, she has done it all, and so... She did everything. Yeah, (laughs) so a deep wealth (laughs) of knowledge and wisdom, I think, too. Um, Today, our subject is EEOC do, don't, and definitely don't, and so um, I think what would help our listeners would be a little overview of the EEOC, why it functions, and who has to care as a business leader or manager.
2: Okay, well, first of all, thank you all. Um, I'm always happy to come and talk to you all, and, you know, you make me feel good being here, you know. So (laughs) thank you for all of the accolades. But, you know, the EEOC um, is the federal agency that was created in 1964 um, to basically administer um, and to enforce Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which dealt with race discrimination, color, sex, national origin, um, religion, and then basically from that, after that statute was passed, um, the laws, different laws were added in, so they actually also enforced the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Genetic Information Act. Um, they also do EPA, which is, you know, Equal Pay Act, and the purpose of the EEOC is to try to regulate anti-discrimination laws, federal laws that prohibit discrimination in the workplace. So the EEOC is the federal agency that is, um, actually was created for that purpose. It's, at one time when it was first really created in 1964, it had no litigation authority. So the only thing the EEOC could do was to try to get companies to do what they were supposed to do and follow the law. It has obviously over time since 1964 evolved, and I think it was 1979 when they finally realized they needed to have some kind of bite, mm. because if they didn't have any threat of litigation, then people were not necessarily going to voluntarily do what they should, because there was nothing that, that they had to worry about. So in 1979 is when they created the legal units, and they were basically like around, I think they had maybe four or five regional offices but then they decided that it was best to have one either in every district office or every field office etc so they have they don't have a a attorney's office in every local office because they have local offices that are part of the field office as part of the district offices but the district offices are the ones that actually have the most uh, strong the strength because the district offices actually will um, also direct the field and local offices. But the goal of the EEOC is to try to get people to follow the law. So the purpose has changed, you know, during different administrations, different people in office. They come with a different mission, but the overall mission is to eradicate or stop discrimination and to try to educate people so that they don't discriminate in the future to um, address discrimination when it has occurred and there's voluntary compliance you know trying to get people to settle a case or to resolve it to mediate to try to resolve it to correct policies or put policies in place that don't exist correct the ones that are not being adhered to you know so it's the the goal is to educate to correct and if necessary litigate And litigation really is supposed to be the last straw. You know, the goal is to try to see if you can mediate it or to see if you can resolve it. And there's different levels. I mean, you can have a voluntary settlement or you can have a situation where, you know, you enter into we find a violation. If the EEOC finds a violation, at that point, then they go into what is called conciliation and they try to resolve it. And if they can't conciliate it, then at that point, a letter of determine, i mean, uh, excuse me—a uh, conciliation failure notice is sent out, and the conciliation failure then will either give them the right to file the victim or the person who's aggrieved the right to file a lawsuit in federal court, or the EEOC itself may file a lawsuit. And we wish, you know, when I was working there, we wanted to file, you know, as many as we could to address the egregious behavior we saw. But of course they're limited by budget because of, you know, Congress. So sometimes they couldn't take every case that they would like to have taken. But they try to take cases that will have significant impact, particularly where it involves, you know, evolving law. You know, the EEOC is one of the first agencies that really strongly advocated for gender identity and sexual orientation. Uh, anti-discrimination laws and based on their efforts and the continued, uh, you know, continuing to fight it because I was involved in that, um, the law changed last year where that is now covered. So, you know, the goal is also to do that because, you know, the EESC sets policy because we have a, <coughs> excuse me, legal uh, department which actually develops policy. Then we have a uh, the general counsel office which is the attorneys that actually litigate discrimination. You know, and then so they have, you know, um, all kinds of entities in place. And of course, mediation. Mediation is an important part. But if the cases are truly egregious or very serious, then it won't go to mediation. And that's why what court. we try to do is, <laughs> to get, yeah, it'll end up in court, which okay. <laughs> companies to follow the law. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's our goal to try to get them, if they do it up front, they're not looking at litigation, they're not looking at attorney's fees, they're not looking at you know, all those costs associated with that if they try to resolve it. Because you know there are times when people won't resolve it with us and then we end up going to court and then they end up paying attorney's fees and all the monies that we tried to get or even more money than the monies we tried to get in trying to resolve
1: it. Right. Well, and not to mention all of the associated uh, legal fees and discovery fees, and so forth. I oh mean yes. Those can be uh, more than damaging, to say the yes. least, to a bottom line for a year. Um, well, so that's all very helpful, and I enjoy uh, learning more about the EEO process. And to that end, I'd like to know a little bit about, so say an employee who's aggrieved files a charge with the EEOC, and the EEOC decides, okay, we're going to take this up, and we're going to go ahead and pursue this. What does that process look like? If you could start from the employee and then um, how that kind of plays out for the employer
2: okay well actually any person can file a charge of discrimination and basically that is just coming to the eeoc and saying i believe i've been subjected to discrimination and i think it's because of this reason or another Many times, you know, companies are like, well, how come they didn't know what it was? I said, well, people don't necessarily know why they were treated the way they were treated, but they just felt it was discrimination. Mm-hmm. So someone could come in and file a charge. What, the, what EEOC does is when it gets the charge, it looks at it to see if there's merit. If there is no merit up front, they will inform the aggrieved person or the person that believes they were aggrieved, we, you know, the EEOC does not see where this actually violates any of the statutes. It could be something that was not, you were not treated fairly, but it did not violate the statutes that we are, you know, there to enforce. Is
1: that where the reasonable person?
2: Yes, because, you see, technically, um, you know, it's, people sometimes think that, you know, it has to be um, something, it has to be subjective, but it actually also has to be something that, under the law, but there's laws that says certain issues can't be litigated, certain issues can't be uh, investigated by the EOC. We're just limited. So, you know, if someone comes in and say, like for example, whistleblowing, if it's a whistleblowing issue, but it's not something necessarily based on sex discrimination or race discrimination or something that is one of the statutes that we actually enforce, then we can't do anything about it. There are times when people are treated wrongfully at work, but if it doesn't fall and in, fall into one of the anti-discrimination statutes then our hands they're limited also if the company is not large enough so say the company is like a five people company or maybe a you know 10 person company then the eesc is not actually able to we can investigate but we can't do anything because at that point the company has to have at least 15 under title seven or 20 under you know the age discrimination act and the age americans with disability act Procedures follows Title Seven, mm-hmm. so you know that the gets EPA coming. though. But the, the e- EPA is the only exception. With the EPA, it there is no limit, so I we actually two can't or
1: more employees, right? right. It's two or I more mean, employees. You kind of have to have two or more to have pay yes. disparity, right? Yes. Okay, but that's very interesting. So, okay, so now the employee has has filed uh, a or charge. someone has filed a charge, right?
2: And once they file the charge, then of course it's assigned to an investigator. Looking at it sometimes, if the cases come in, you know, the the EEOC has a process, and they've been doing it for a number of years, I think since like 1996, where they almost like triage the cases. So when they come in, they look at them, see if it has any merit. If it doesn't have any merit, like I said, they will let the people know and then actually issue a right to sue early on because people have a right to a right to sue. If they try to counsel them and tell them if they don't have anything, but if someone insists on filing a charge, it has to be filed. That's under the law. But we will let them know, well, you know, okay, you can file it. You have a right, but we don't see anything. Now also, get, don't get me wrong, there are times where the EEOC may not have seen something and someone has gone into court and has actually prevailed in court because there was maybe there was not enough information presented to us so we didn't realize what was going on. Or, you know, it's just the perception of how you see something. So it's not that if you get filed a charge and the charge is dismissed from the EEOC, a person still has a right to go into court with the right to sue and file their own lawsuit. And many do and many have prevailed. But basically, with the process, they come in, file the charge, EEOC investigates. If EEOC um, determines that there was a violation, it issues a letter of determination, letting the company know they found we found a violation. And at that point, the persons are engaged in the conciliation. But the process is an investigation. So during the investigation, uh, witnesses are interviewed. Policies are reviewed. Procedures are witnesses are other employees? Employees. Uh, pol- uh, the employees' personnel files. And what the EEOC does is we will contact the employer and ask for a request for information. And it's similar in a sense to kind of interrogatories and discovery, but it's not because it doesn't have the same effect as it would because it's not sworn that nothing. But basically, it's to try to get information early on so we can determine, is there enough information here to find a violation? Is there enough information to show somebody was subjected to discrimination? And so during the investigation, witnesses, like I said, are interviewed, and people are, you know, the, the investigators will make a determination. They will, you know, it goes through the process. The, whatever decision is made from investigator to the district director, is an internal deliberative process so those documents are not releasable because that's actually the eeoc is deliberating on what the decision will be the final decision that is issued which is the letter of determination is not um something that is um confidential so therefore that is something that will be released
0: michelle i got a question for you sure you know we've been talking about the an employee that has a complaint so Can this also happen with a candidate that's applying for a job that may feel like they've been discriminated against as a part of the hiring process as well?
2: Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, that's a good question. Uh, Many times we have hiring... uh, People that will come in and believe that they've been subjected to discrimination, that they were not considered for a position um, based on any of the statutes. You know, if you believe that you were not hired for this job because of your race or because you have a disability, um, or because you they thought you were too old, etc., then you have a right to come in and file the charge of discrimination. And actually, also, if you were trying to get a job and you needed an accommodation to apply for the job and the company refused to give you that accommodation in applying for the job, you can come in and file a discrimination charge. You also can file a charge of discrimination if you apply to work at Company A, but Company B, the company you used to work at, gave a negative recommendation intentionally as a form of retaliation, because I've actually taken cases to court like that, and we ended up filing against the company that made the negative recommendation and the company that listened to them Mm -hmm. and followed through because, you know, Company A and Company B were in a relationship together, but they were actually separate companies. But Company A did not want to lose Company B's business. Company B says don't hire this person because this person Cause trouble at our job, and we don't like them, or we didn't want bub, whatever reason. And so, as a result, if they're acting in concert and they're denying somebody a job, you file a lawsuit, and we actually found a lawsuit and got a hundred thousand dollars for that. So, you know, it behooves companies to try to make decisions based on legitimate, sound reasons, and not let you know how you feel about somebody play into that. You know, I mean. Obviously, if you are interviewing somebody and it doesn't feel like a good fit, that's not the same thing as intentionally saying I don't want, you know, old people. I don't want women. I don't want men. <laughs> I don't want you know Asians. I don't want. And people do that. I mean, we actually had people come in and say, "Well, you know, we 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 lost the black person, so we thought we should hire a black person." I said, "That's fine." I said, "But just don't say we only hired this black person because they were black." Right. <laughs> you know, because that's the same kind of discrimination you don't make a decision based on race you don't make a decision based on sex you don't make a decision based on or the fact that they are that sex gender national origin age and you don't want them you know if you don't want to hire someone that's fine we can't tell you who to hire not to hire but if you make decisions that are based on a prohibitive basis under the statutes it's a violation so yes applicants can also apply
0: so does the EEOC, you know, for, for companies that, uh, at a certain size, that require the reporting to be done, the uh-huh. EEO1. Con- yeah, EEO1, 100 or more. So if if a company like that is not doing any reporting at all, where what's the recourse to the business if they're not?
2: Well, actually, that's an interesting question because uh, in the past, excuse me, <laughs> we actually filed EEO1 lawsuits a failure to file EEO-1. I remember uh, for a while many companies were failing to do this. So it became a targeted practice for the EEOC to look at companies to see if they were filing them. If they were not filing them, then we filed a lawsuit for their failure to file the EEO-1. And then they ended up having to litigate this. So now they're paying for the cost of litigation. And then they have to resolve it. And then we can also, you know, they could be charged some kind of fee or finding, you know. So it's a good question. I mean, you know, reporting <coughs> excuse me, is important because, you know, the statute's required. And if you don't report, then you're subjecting yourself to fines, and it's not worth it. I mean, it's just like every company really should have the EEO is the law poster up in their workplace. It's basically letting people know you have a right to um, to be working someplace where it's free from discrimination and you also have a right to either file an internal complaint with the company or to go to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And that's where our our name addresses on. By not letting them know that, then you're denying them their rights. So that's where those kind of posting come in. Because when the commission goes to companies to do like say an on-site investigation where they actually go to the company to look at the the workplace, because sometimes it's good to know the work site or if some companies, you know, we, it'd be better for us to do an in-person uh, interview and if, say, like they're in Shreveport, Louisiana, we can't get them to come to us, we have to go to them. Because our, our subpoena power is about 100, you know, miles from the office and we're located in New Orleans. So basically, we will go there and interview. We will look around and see if those posters, all of the the posters that are required by the various entities or agencies, are posted. And you know, you could be looking at a hundred and ten dollar violation for you know posters. I, I don't remember the exact amount because that's something the investigators would do more than I did. But you know, it's, the point is, is that you're looking at something because you didn't report, or if you didn't report the EEO one, or any other reports that become required. Under the statutes, if you don't report like you should, then you're looking at a fee and a finding, and you're having the EEOC. You may have a really great workplace, but if th- that ends up being, you know, s- like a, a a gig against you because you didn't follow something that you should have. Now maybe some companies don't know, but you know they really should try to find out what they are. And, and that's another thing that's good about the EEOC and actually any federal agency. If there are questions. You can contact, you know, the duty officer. You could call the EEOC and just say you have information. And actually, there's a uh, the EEOC has a very extensive web, and it's www.eeoc.gov, and it tells you. Every statute that's in force, it FQs. tells you the regulations, it provides all the current cases that are in litigation, that are major cases, uh, it tells you, you know, like every press release, you know, it's like a, a mega source of information. It shows you how to file a charge, it tells you what your rights are, it has rights for employers, rights for employees. So it's not like it's just designed for the people who believe they're aggrieved. Anyone can look on that website and get a whole host of information. And there actually are rights and responsibilities that employees also have to do. I mean, you know, the the point is, is if you work someplace, like, say, for example, you're working someplace and you believe you've been subjected to sexual harassment, if the company has a policy in place, which the law requires that they are supposed to have a policy in place, but it actually is supposed to be also communicated to people, because mm-hmm. that's how the case law came out in 1998, in the Farragher and Ellen... Burlington cases the company had a policy but they had the policy locked in a safe safe in the back of a room no one ever saw so they said we have a policy it's like yes yeah, right but there's a policy that was never communicated to anyone in essence you don't have a policy so if you have that and you've had training and you talk to people and you know the, the people be- someone says it was subject to discrimination and, okay, if it's a supervisor that is subjecting someone to sexual harassment, any kind of harassment, and it's a supervisor with certain hiring authority position and high up, the company will be vicariously automatically liable just because it was that position. Specifically, if it's like, you know, if you don't go to bed with me, then you won't get this or you will get fired, that kind of thing. But if it's hostile work environment, then at that situation, there's no automatic, you know, there is a defense where if the person says it was subject to discrimination, but they never reported, never complained, and never talked to anybody, but they had a policy in place, then that could be a problem, because then the company can say, well, we have an affirmative defense, we didn't know what was going on. Of course, you know, there's always exceptions in all these. If there's something you should have known or everybody would have known about, you can't say that. And then, of course, there's the chilling effect, because, you know, people sometimes are afraid because they're to come forth. And if it's something that would be a legitimate concern. So you, there are things you look at, but generally it is at least gives them an affirmative defense to show that they have that in place. And that's why policies and procedures are important. You know, we can't make someone put a policy and procedure in place unless we file a lawsuit against them. And, and in litigation we can then demand certain policies, procedures, training, et cetera as part of the conciliation, I mean the, the settlement, or the court can require it as a form of injunctive relief because that's what it is. But it, it really is, it behooves the company that they really should, because if they want to protect themselves and they want to try to do what is best for them, because we know as well, people file frivolous complaints and charges, and maybe the company did everything it was supposed to, and if you could show The employer can show that they did what they were supposed to do. If they can show they took everything and they made, you know, took immediate and appropriate corrective action to address whatever form of discrimination that is the subject of the charge, it will be dismissed because it was said that there is no violation because they did everything they could do.
0: So, Michelle, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the podcast today, but I want to say thank you again for coming in. Uh, and spending time with us on EEOC and we certainly know it's it's very relevant and it's not going away and and your insights are amazing. So we want to certainly thank you for that. So this is going to wrap up another edition of Down the HR Rabbit Hole brought to you by Crescent HR and Crescent Payroll Solutions. We will see you all next time.